This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Choro, for the invitation. My pleasure. And when, uh, when we talked about what the topic for the talk could be, oh, hi, Zoom folks. <laughs> Easily forgotten <laughs> among other things she said uh, mindfulness as taught in Zen I don't know maybe that's because uh, it's not taught very explicitly so how is it taught maybe it's taught implicitly but uh, drew kindly mentioned the book uh, the Path of Aliveness, and in it I'm trying to uh, be a little bit more methodical about how we could maybe understand mindfulness as taught in Zen. One of the chapters. Now maybe uh, it's useful to jump in with a definition what mindfulness is. It's become pretty popular, you know. It's I, It seems to me like it's it's just good for everything. <laughs> Enhances your concentration, makes you, you know, calmer. Your relationships improve. Uh, your grades in school. <laughs> Every, everyone tries to improve through mindfulness now, it seems. But, okay, so I want to be pretty technical in the definition and say mindfulness is the intention to bring attention to sensation without thinking about it. Sometimes you hear that definition uh, in a similar way and it's like bring attention to sensation without uh, being judgmental. I don't think it's enough. It's not. It it's it is that. It's it's about not being judgmental. But it's not just that. It's uh, it's actually to be non-conceptual about what you experience through the senses. So when I say sensation, I mean what is experienced through the senses. Non-conceptual. When. Uh, Choro and Bunkai kindly got me from the airport, you know, they showed me around, we were in the yard, and there was a bird with a yellow chest, and we didn't know its name. Just because we don't know the name for something doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? The bird is just there, it has a yellow chest, we can see it. It's in the tree, and it was quite lovely. And then... Chora said, I haven't learned the names of the birds here. And, uh, yeah, there are unnameable things. There are things that we don't know the name for, but then there are also unnameable things. So that's something to get used to. A mind that functions without the need to think, without the need to name, without the need to conceptualize doesn't mean we can't conceptualize things, but do we need to conceptualize them? So in this definition, the intention to bring attention to sensation without thinking about, you have a number of ingredients. Intention. Now, intention is the way we direct our attention. It's just, you know, if you want to walk down this hallway... It's like the mind has an intention and attention will be organized around that intention to, in this case, to walk down the hallway. Attention is probably the most precious aspect of your mind. Where your attention goes, your life goes. You understand? Moment by moment, where your attention goes, your life goes. 
Everyone wants to own your attention. It's the main business model now. If they can own your attention, they get your money. Clickbait, you know. If there's something that can draw your attention, you're hooked. Attention is like the the function of the mind, you know, where you are focused on something. The bird in the tree, or, you know, that story on the internet, or whatever your attention is drawn to. So, but now we are forming, in mindfulness, we're forming the intention to bring attention to sensation. And as I already said, sensation, as I use the word here, is... Uh, anything that arises through the six senses. In Buddhism, they're the five physical senses, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touch, and uh, mind. So the mind is considered a sense too. So in some sense, we can, in some way, we can understand thoughts as sensations too. You know that the thought thoughts are that which arises in the mind. But thinking is tricky. So I said mindfulness is to bring attention to sensation without thinking about it. Because you can have thoughts about anything. You know what you see can be conceptualized and thought about, what you hear can be conceptualized and thought about. What you think can be conceptualized and thought about. Thinking has this quality of leading to more thinking. You have a thought and then you grasp it with another thought and then it proliferates. You have that experience? (laughs) Somebody's like, "Mm -hmm." it's because I'm speaking the truth. When you sit down for the first time, or you sit down for the hundredth time, or you've sat many, many years in meditation, you can notice how busy or not busy the mind is. But let's just stay with busy. That's just thoughts wafting through your mind space. You know, we have various ways of thinking about it. It's uh, speaking about it. It's your thoughts are spinning, or they're, you know, uh, running. Or I call this mind discursive. The Latin word discurre means to run around in various directions. That's a pretty good description. Thoughts are running around in various directions. The the Indian. Buddhist tradition calls it monkey mind. We don't have any monkeys here, but the monkey is just jumping from branch to branch without seeming, you know, rhyme or reason. It's just jumping around. That's what the mind is doing. So most people, maybe at first, are surprised how busy the mind is. And then they get very quickly annoyed about it. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like oh, no, I don't want it this way. But I want to encourage you, when you realize how busy your mind is in your meditation, that's very good. It's very good meditation. This is uh, getting to know yourself better. Because in your daily life without meditation, your mind is doing the same thing, but you're not noticing it. So to notice it is great progress. You may get annoyed, but you know, just think of it, I'm making great progress. <laughs> it is actually a significant step to uh, realize, oh, this is what the mind is doing. It's discursive. It jumps around. So... Mindfulness practice is starting to work with your mind in a certain way. 
And typically, the reference point for laying out mindfulness in a kind of um, orderly way is something like the Satipatthana Sutra, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. But, and some of you know this, but some of you don't. It spells out targets for attention. When I said, you know, you bring, you've performed the intention to bring attention to sensation, well, what sensations are you going to bring attention to? So this, the four foundations of mindfulness say, like, first, bring attention to the body. So I want to translate that, bring attention to the sensations of the body. This includes breath. Bring attention to the sensations of breathing. And then it says, a second target for attention is feelings. Bring attention to your feelings. And then bring attention to states of mind. Let's just look at two states of mind, resistance and grasping. You know, you don't want something, and you do want something. You want more of something. You want it to last. Let's call that grasping. So those would be states of mind. So that's a target. You can notice without thinking about those states of mind. And then finally, in, in this particular sutra, it says you can bring attention to dharmas. Dharmas are... Anyway, this dharma is a complicated term, but here it means certain elements of of the Buddhist teaching. Okay, so there's a kind of progression here, you know, bring attention to the body, the sensations of the body, bring attention to feelings, states of mind, and then elements of the teaching. But that's not how I want to talk about it today. This is something you can find and it's useful and so forth, but today I want to talk about it in, in a in kind of... It's like not targets of attention, but methods of bringing attention. Okay? I remember this because when I meet new people, you know, they ask me, how, do you, how did you get into Zen? Or something like that. You know? So I have to tell a story. I like to make it fresh for myself so it's not the same story. I... Um, was in San Francisco, and I had a housemate, and my housemate said, oh, I go to this place now and then, you know, it's like the, it's a Zen center, you want to come. And I didn't have anything better to do. I was pretty depressed, didn't know what to do with my life. And so I said, I might, <laughs> I might as well go to the Zen center, I'm fine. So, um, so I went, and then I think they did something like, that was something that was offered this morning, like there was zazen instruction for newbies, myself, and uh, so they told me to uh, sit and um, sit upright, still, and count my breath. So that's what I did, uh, tried, in my first period of meditation. <coughs> What is counting the breath? I don't know if Zazen is instructed this way here, but it is in many places. But what is counting the breath? First of all, there is no breath. There is the activity of breathing, and even that is not a good way to uh, think about it. There are the sensations of breathing in, that we can notice. Then we call it the breath. But what we want to bring attention to are the sensations of breathing. And you can do that right now while I'm talking. What are the sensations of breathing in your own body? Where do you feel the breath? And then you have the intention to count the sensations of breathing. Now, 
there's different ways you can count, you know. I don't know how it's instructed here. You can count the inhales, you can count the exhales, you can count inhales and exhales. And the idea is you count from 1 to 10. And um, when you notice that your mind starts to get involved with thoughts, become discursive, you return to 1. Now, it's very important, actually, to not discuss yourself. Like, why did I start thinking? Or what am I thinking about? Or, oh, I'm thinking again. I shouldn't. No. You notice that you, your attention got entangled with thinking again. And then you just return to one. Gently but firmly. Just return. When you use the counting method, you're using the naming function of the mind. Now you're using the numbers as names. You're using the naming function of the mind to stabilize attention on the sensations of breathing. Does that make sense? You say one and you stabilize attention on the, on the sensation of this exhale. I like to use the exhale. When you, as I like to say, when your mind weather is strong, there's a lot of thoughts, you can use inhale and exhale, you know, because you are more tightly, uh, you're, you're holding your attention more tightly on the breath that way. But I like the exhale because the exhale emphasizes a kind of relaxed mind. You just kind of melt into the, into the exhale. And you accompany that by saying one. And then two. So, if you count to three, that's pretty good, you know. So this is something I realized over the years, that counting is just like naming, and it is a way to stabilize attention on sensation. And the reason I'm saying this is because your practice of naming is not limiting, limited to counting the breath. It's not limited to breath, and it's not limited to counting. And I, I, I want to bring this up because we can do this practice off the cushion too. You don't have to just do it on the cushion. If you're walking somewhere, you can count your breath. If you're walking something, you can count your steps. If you stay in a room where the, where the faucet drips, you can count the drips of the faucet. You can count your heartbeat. All of these examples are sensations that we can stabilize our attention on. You see? Now, if you start to experiment with naming, you can name what is happening. Fan. Cushion. The sun on your watch. Mask. Buddha. You know? You can just go around the room and name things. That may seem like a boring thing. It, it's a, just a way to exercise the mind of like stabilizing attention on the particular sensation that you are focusing on right now. You can do it with sounds. You can do it with your thoughts. You could just name your thought, thought, thought. You know, you've, some of you have heard this, right? It's, the, it's called labeling. And notice when you do a practice like this, how the mind jumps and becomes discursive. When you do a practice like this, one of the main insights you can have is that you are not owning your attention. You are not owning your attention. This is catastrophic. 
How can that be? This most intimate thing, that where my attention goes, my life goes, and I'm not owning attention, it's, it's, it's just getting entangled with stuff, and I'm not owning it. it. means you don't own your life. We don't know this. We, you, know, you begin to know it when you start counting or, or do the practice of naming because you realize, I can't keep my attention on what I set out to keep it on. I say it's, catas- it's not catastrophic. You're okay. <laughs> Just add a little drama. <laughs> No, but I think it is a serious matter. It's a serious insight. It's a little frightening. We all experience this. You know, we all have these powerful computers in our pockets now, and it's like they have this like spell. Like, oh, I need to go, you know, look at my phone. It's a way when you when you notice that kind of addiction, you you notice that you're not owning your attention in the full sense of the of what I mean to say here. Okay, so this is not a beginner's practice. This is something you can just if you're if you're more experienced practitioners, just throw it in now and then. Now you can do it when you walk around the neighborhood or when you're driving, you can use this naming function to name things and exercise attention in this way. It's just like going to the gym. And when you name things, you find that there are things you, that are not, as I already said, that are not nameable, like that bird you don't know the name of, or this, this glow of light that you're delighted by, or, you know, the many shades of green in a garden, you know, you don't, you don't have names for all those shades of green. And the world opens up into, the unnamed world opens up into a kind of complexity that you, do, you, that you can really experience when the mind is, is boxing everything into already existing concepts. Does that make sense? This is one of the first experiences, you know, that are so delightful when you start to practice mindfulness is when you do have a moment of a non-thinking mind that is just involved with sensations. There's such delight in the world. It's like you can just bathe in, in, uh, in the aliveness of your own sensations. It's quite wonderful, you know, just to feel the sun on your skin. You have to think about anything. It's just like, oh... Or a breeze. Or you really experience the heat. You live in Texas. So. <laughs> I come from Colorado. It's like air is dry and it's not so hot. Okay, but it's hot here, so you can feel the heat. Instead of fighting against it, just feel it completely. Mm-hmm. And then you go inside and it's so cold. <laughs> and you and you just feel that. So there's this delight. When attention becomes more stable with noticing sensations of all kinds, breath, but also, as I just pointed out, sensations of all kinds, um, counting or naming becomes kind of mechanical or it feels redundant, you know. And then you go through the gate, call this the four gates of mindfulness, counting or naming, and then you go through the gate of following. You just follow the sensations without counting or without naming. So you follow your breathing without counting. 
but attention is now stable enough to follow the minuteness of how the breath unfolds. This can take, depending on how diligently you practice, this could take years. But attention is stable enough to just follow breathing. Suzuki Roshi said, um, no, our spiritual grandfather, he said, um, don't try to control your breathing. When you try to control your breathing, your mind is not alert and soft enough. When your mind is alert and soft enough to follow the subtle activity of inhaling and exhaling, when your mind is alert and soft enough to follow the subtle activity of inhaling and exhaling, you will find out many things that you did not notice before. This, this I think, is actually a really profound statement. He talks about this as, he says, when you have that secret in your everyday life, you will notice many things you didn't notice before. Because there are things that are not nameable, if your mind is locked into you know, needing to notice things conceptually, you, there are things you do, will not notice. When your mind is alert and soft enough to follow sensations without needing to think about them, you will notice many things that you didn't notice before. You get to know yourself better. You get to know the world better. You cannot jump there. Attention needs to be stable enough to be with sensations without thinking before you can follow. Our tendency is like, what I'm doing right now is I lay out the four gates of uh, mindfulness, and then we want to jump to the fourth gate. You know, we don't really want to practice. I don't want to practice. I want to arrive, and you know, I don't want to put in time. And but it, with any real skill that you're that you're trying to uh, um, acquire, you know, you you do need to practice. But those of you who have more experience with counting, you, you, you probably notice a time when your mind becomes stable enough where the counting can just fall away. So you don't need to like actively walk through the gate. You get walked through the gate at one point and you just find yourself following your breath. Just feeling it. Is that what it is? Noticing these sensations. But then on the walk that you take in the neighborhood, you can do the same thing. You can just look at the trees, and, and there's no need to think, and the world just uh, comes to you. Attention has a structure, and it, it takes time to notice that structure. Now, when I point it out now, it's really obvious, and it's super simple. But in your experience, it takes time to uh, be familiar with this structure. And the structure is that, structure of attention is that there is a focus and there is a field. So if you look at the staff and make this your focus, if you make soft eyes and sort of don't focus the staff, but the space around it, then you get... Uh, a feeling for this structure that attention can be focused or it can be just resting in the field. You get that? We've just been talking about focused attention. Focused on the sensations of breathing. Focused on this one bird. Focused on this tree. 
and so forth. <coughs> But you want to, I think, now and then, try to unfocus your attention and just let it go to the field. There's not much happening in the field. That's one way to look at it. It's because you're not focused like this. And another way of looking at it is everything is happening in the field because... From the field, you pick your next focus. So this is the gate I call resting. You can practice following sensations with your attention. And then there's a kind of foreground-background reversal. Rather than following certain contents, you are stepping into the background or I don't know maybe you want to say the field is coming to the foreground and what and the contents you could focus on are going to the background and now you're just hanging out in the field <clears throat> when I hang out in the field it's a very relaxed mind and I'm not focused on anything in particular I have enough experience with it that while I'm talking right now, I can kind of generate this, also this field attention that we could call awareness. Play with that. In your meditation, as you are practicing following your the sensations of breathing, let's say, this could happen spontaneously, you know, where... You just find yourself like in this space, spacious, extended field, and you just find yourself resting there. Yeah, all these things are still happening. The breath is happening. There are sounds. You can hear the air conditioning. But you're not focused on anything in particular. You asked me yesterday... Um, you know, I don't understand the talk awareness of awareness, you know, and it's a little obscure, but that's what that is, you know, you notice the field, and you become aware of the field. The, the, fe- the field of mind, or this awareness, is so obvious, but it's at the same time, it's so hidden because our mind is occupied with the content. <coughs> You see, I, I'm, I look at this, I look at this, I look at this, I feel this, I have that thought, and so I'm, I'm sort of separated from this field of awareness that is actually always present, but I'm always focused on something. It's a, you could say this is the definition of samadhi. If you heard that word, samadhi is always like, oh, what's that? Samadhi is this, when the mind is resting in itself, you could say, or when the mind is resting in the field of mind, in that field. It's a kind of concentration, but it's not a concentration that is operating with focus. It's a concentration that is just, it's a kind of readiness for whatever wants to happen next. See, because from the field, anything can become the focus. It's a very different uh, sense of concentration. It's like if I can pour my mind into this room, it's like I can just, it's like an extension of my body. It's like I, I can feel what's happening in the room without being just focused on one thing. Speaking of awareness, you said something last night that really helped. 
me understand awareness of awareness when you said that your breath, when you're following your breath, your awareness of your breath becomes kind of braided with your, your body or your, mm -hmm. your sensation. You said it becomes braided, and that was really helpful. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This uh, field of mind that I'm pointing out right now and that you can start to experiment with or sort of watch for how your mind... See, we're not separate from it. It's not something you need to um, make happen. It's more something to relax into. The fourth gate that I want to point out is what I call investigating. And investigating in our Western culture means something like ask good questions and find answers. <laughs> something like that. You know, like the de detective is an investigator. It's like asking good questions and finding answers to solve the case. But that's not how we want to investigate. When you investigate with your conceptual mind, which of course we can do too, but when you investigate with your conceptual mind, you're always already bringing a conceptual framework to what you're investigating. This, to learn to investigate with your field of mind is something like, you may have a question, but you put that question into the field of mind and you're not trying to answer. You're trying to see what comes up in response to the question. And it's like, you know, if nothing comes up, that's the result of your investigation. This is unusual. Like, we're usually not satisfied with that. It's like, what? I need answers. <laughs> But you want to actually place questions in here to grow into some answers that you don't know yet. So if you try to answer your questions, all you will find what you already know. All the core teachings of Buddhism can be in investigated with the breath. If you want to investigate impermanence, you know, you can... Put yourself into this field of mind and feel your breathing, feel your breathing, and then keep asking the question, is there anything permanent here? Do you find anything permanent about the breath? And then instead of immediately saying, no, you, you feel your breathing and you experience directly impermanence. There it is. This is evidence of impermanence. Now you can look at a tree, and you put yourself into this field of mind, and you let the tree arise, and you feel the movement of the leaves. This is impermanence experienced directly. You can go to the body sensations, you know, that you usually frame in terms of certain emotions, but now I'm suggesting just feel the sensations that underlie your emotions. This is difficult in itself to leave, you know, you, you experience something you call anxiety, and then immediately the term anxiety gets you into a story about how you don't want that anxiety, how you've had it for years, how you are too old to experience anxiety around these kinds of events and so forth. But there it is, you have it. And what you have is not anxiety, what you have is certain sensations in certain areas of your body. And if you can just feel those sensations without naming them anxiety and without getting involved in the story, that's the narrative or discursive thinking, all you're sitting with is the sensations that you 
usually call anxiety. Is there anything permanent about those sensations? And then you watch how they are there and how they're changing. This is impermanence. If you get confident in permanence, you will know that anxiety is not going to last forever. You can ride it out. It comes and it goes. I make it sound easy. It's not easy. But there is a path here. So you can investigate impermanence in this way. You can investigate unpredictability. Like when you take a breath, you can ask yourself, is there anything predictable about this next breath? And then you feel directly how this, sec- this next breath is new. It's not the same. If you if you if you really are in in within the immediacy of these kinds of investigations, you'll notice about your life that there's nothing predictable about it. We, we don't even know if we're going to be alive tomorrow. I'm going to take a bus this afternoon, I think. All right, that's the plan. It may happen. I think that but I may die on the way to the bus. Since I'm taking you, I hope. Right. Well, <laughs> it, may, it may not depend on you, unfortunately. Okay, I'm joking about it, but it, it is, there's an edge here. There's an edge here that you can feel with every breath. It's like we don't know that there is this kind of depth or richness in you know, feeling our breath or investigating it. But when you get familiar with it, it, it feels like, well, I really don't know what's going to happen with my life. And it changes how you approach it. How you approach it from moment to moment. You, invest, you can investigate interdependence, you know, this kind of term, which you can think about a lot and you can understand it conceptually. But to understand it with your body is something like you feel your breath and you feel the interdependence, say, of so-called inside and outside. The breath, the air is coming from outside and it's going inside. And then it goes from inside to outside. Inside and outside are not separate. Your breath is bridging them all the time. Inside and outside are also not separate in terms of when you see something, a feeling arises here in this body, mind. When you're in relationship with someone, feelings arise. The person is seemingly outside, but what you're feeling is inside. Feeling what happens outside and what you feel, so to speak, inside is happening at the same time. It co-arises. That's interdependence. You can feel it directly. But when you are conceptually investigating these concepts, you are not experiencing them directly. So you need that kind of training of the mind to disentangle attention from thinking and merging, you said braiding, attention with sensation so that your mind can function in this kind of immediate investigation of your life. Uh, Immediate, by that I mean unmediated by thought. So there is a there is a progression here, kind of like a, a certain development of the mind. You start with discursive thinking, and as I said, it's important to notice that your mind is doing that. Don't try to skip over it. Be honest. 
it's happening, <laughs> sit with it, notice that it's happening. Then you can take a practice like counting the breath or naming, as I pointed out, and you can begin to disentangle attention from thinking. What you're developing is what I call attentional consciousness. It's this mind that can focus on things without thinking about them. It seems so trivial, but it's, a, it's an actual skill that needs to be developed. And then you develop, as you are becoming more adept at following and then resting in this, what I call the field of mind, you're developing a taste for awareness, which is, I'm just using different words here now, there's attentional consciousness, which is focused, and then there's awareness, which is not focused. And when you have a sense that you can rest there, you can bring conceptual consciousness back into it. You see, we're not trying to be zombies that don't think. Like, <laughs> we're human beings. We need to think. What we're trying to develop, we want to be free. Um, Dogen calls it, you know, the baskets and cages. The baskets and cages of, of, of the mind. You want to be free from being encaged in concepts. Instead, you want to use them freely. So it's like when, when you have freed yourself because you can rest in this field of mind, then you can bring the concepts back in. But now they're much more playful. It's like you just, you, you know, if somebody doesn't like the concept you use, you say like, okay, put it in the trash, it's fine. Let's, let's use a different one if it works better. When we start with this process, it's like things are the way we think them. If I have an opinion, that's the way it is. When you, when you can step back from that, you say, like, well, that's one way to see it. If you're unable to see, oh, that's one way to see it, you are attached. This is to be encaged in a concept or in an opinion. That's how I think mindfulness could be taught in Zen. Thank you very much. Well, we could still have some questions, maybe for a little bit. Are you willing to answer two questions? Yeah, I'd love to. All right. So what would you like to ask? <coughs> or comment? Yeah. Yes. I asked a question here a few weeks ago about, um, this is a little, this is not a, directly about mindfulness, but it is about being um, self-big-ass. If that makes sense. Self-big-ass? Uh-huh. Okay. If, when you're in this state of awareness and mindfulness, if you're closer to being there than other times. I don't understand. Um, so, sometimes for me, when I am focused on monkey mind, yeah. I don't really feel like um, is that that's like me, really. I mean, it is, but it's a part of me just sort of when I'm calm and mindful and not conceptual, that maybe I feel like that's more me, uh, more the Buddha nature sort of manifesting. Okay. It's a lot of... A lot of words, a lot of words, yeah. yeah. It's okay, I just use a lot of words too. Um, I think it's useful to look at the mind as having various functions. So just, you could say, or modalities. Let's say modalities. Discursive mind is 
uh, discursive thinking is one modality of mind. And awareness is another modality of mind. Now you're asking about self. And it's like, what am I really? Okay, but you could say, let, let's, let's put self to the side. Who cares? Um, just notice what is the case. So you notice there, is, there are thoughts that proliferate discursively. That's one way you can experience um, yourself. And then there is a way where that calms down and you are more like resting in awareness. That's another way you can experience yourself. So practice is something like beginning to notice these different modalities and that they are, that they are accessible. Because at first, it seems like that modality of awareness is not so accessible. It's like the sky and the clouds, right? The clouds are, you know, um, occupying, obscuring the sky. So you're told there's blue sky there, but you really don't see it. Okay, so then practice is to learn to differentiate that. And then practice is also something like you can shift. And say, like, because you own attention more, you can just shift to awareness. Um, When you want to identify with awareness, you have another problem. It's like, oh, that's my real self. Mm. Don't do it. <laughs> but it, it's, you, you want to. I wanted to. I still want to. It's like, want to know what I'm truly, what, you know, my essence, the big S self. Um, It, it's just, it is, it is a modality of your existence. It's, you can use it, if it becomes accessible, you can use it in a new way, which makes your life maybe more skillful, more, we could talk about how it plays <laughs> out, but you know, we don't have to really grasp it. So it's putting it into another category. Yes. So I'm interested in hearing how you work with strong emotion. I'm, I'm a clinical psychologist. So I deal with that a lot with clients, supervising students. So are you asking about how do I work with it myself, or how do I work with when someone else has strong emotions? Um, it's what, sir, what, what is the way of, of, of bringing this approach? Because you're talking about sensations, emotions, and Yeah. I think people get hooked and entangled by very strong affective states, and I'm curious what your perspective is on how to take this orientation to yeah. investigation of that. Well, I'll look at emotion in a particular way. I'm not saying it's the right way, but I look at it a certain way, and I, um, I to. To come in, I find it useful to demystify emotions and just say they are, they have various, comp- each emotion has components. I call, I'll just call them components. And the first component that is present in every emotion is sensation, bodily sensation. You can always ask, um, what, what are you feeling uh, on the sensation level? and where are you feeling it as you are experiencing this emotion. So, we take the example of anxiety. I primarily experience anxiety in my solar plexus. I know from people talking to me that some people primarily experience their anxiety in their heart area. So, you can encourage people to locate the sensations that they're feeling as they're experiencing an emotion. This is true for grief, this is true for anger, this is true for jealousy. 
your sensations might be all over the body. They might be expansive, like with anger, or they might be contractive with shame. So, um, but I think it's very important to begin to uh, see that sensation level of emotion. Okay. So then, and this surprises many people, I think the second component is a concept, an emotion concept. And, and the concept is that you are now framing these sensations as this particular emotion. So a, a standard example that's given, I didn't invent it, but I like to use it, is that the sensations um, we experience with anxiety are pretty much the same as the sensations we experience with excitement. But in, at one time, they are framed as anxiety, something that you are concerned about, and at another time, they are framed as something that you are interested in and you are eager to experience. What ties these two emotions, excitement and anxiety, together is actually the underlying experience of uncertainty of the future. If you're uncertain about the future, you can be anxious about it, and you can be excited about it. It's like, wow, this, is like, this seems like an adventure. I don't know what's going to happen. Depends on how confident you are about going into that uncertainty. So there's a concept that frames the sensation. And once you have that concept, a story can hook to that. Narrative mind can hook to that concept. Like once you have a history of feeling anxious about certain things, it becomes part of a story that the mind tells. So, I so the conceptual part and the narrative mind, I kind of lump together here. And so there is a way that we think about the sensations, and that's conception and narration. Okay, and then the third component is what I call reactive habits. We develop reactive habits around these conceptualized sensations. So if I have anxiety in certain situations, I might develop a habit of not doing that activity that I think causes my anxiety. So I stay away from social situations if I have social anxiety, or I don't go on tall buildings if I have a phobia about that, and so forth. So that's a reactive habit. And our life is already completely entrenched in these reactive habits. We have organized our life habitually around the sensations we don't want to feel. Okay. And, uh, and, the third, and the fourth component that I look at is social scripts. There are certain expectations of me having emotions in certain social situations. When somebody dies, I'm supposed to be sad. I may not have the sensations, but it's like there's some pressure to, you know, at least act as if I was sad. <laughs> no, I'm saying that because um, we feel what we feel. And there's, a, some, there's something, there's an honesty that we have to develop about what's really going on. <clears throat> so... Social scripts are also gendered, and <clears throat> it is more acceptable for <clears throat> excuse me it's more acceptable for men to get angry in public than it is for women, and it's more acceptable for women to um, be tearful and sad in public than it is for men so it it becomes a kind of pressure on us that we are supposed to behave and act a certain way, so I think that's important to notice as a context for our emotional life. But um, the main thing here to practice with, even though I think social scripts and reactive habits are very important, but the main thing to practice with is this learning to separate sensations from, from the conceptual frameworks. Because if you can become mind... If you can develop the confidence to... We talked about mindfulness... Mindfully, and by mindfully, I don't mean like that, you know, mindful. I mean just feel what you feel. If you can, f if you can feel the sensations without the need to go into conceptual or narrative mind, 
you could learn to just ride them out. And it's a kind of freedom. Now, I'm not saying as a psychologist you might then want to work with situations, you know, and how do, you, how do we become more skillful in certain situations so that we don't become, you know, that we can work with actually the sensations too, but first we need to just feel... No, I don't think we don't need to, but I think practice can, uh, de- through practice we can develop that to be, be more confident in experiencing the truth of our experience. Mm-hmm. This, this notion of what was focusing your attention on versus the awareness. Yeah. Um, there's an approach in psychology, we'll go into it. It's basically teaching people to do that, to become aware of right. awareness of their emotion, of their narrative, narrative around it. But what I don't see them doing a lot of is working with attending to the sensation. So what I think, this has been very helpful for me to think about how to begin there, but couple with it. Yeah. Well, this this awareness. One way to translate that this field, what I call the field of mind, is when people realize that they are bigger than their emotions, that they can make space around them. But I would say really around the sensations, mm-hmm. not the emotion. The emotion arises once it's conceptualized. Just to learn to make space around the sensations, you realize. I'm bigger than this event. This event is just something that's happening in my body, and I can rest in this field of mind. Yes, it remains unpleasant. I don't like it, but it's not killing me. It's fine. It's basically fine. No, it is super unpleasant, but it's not fundamentally a problem because I'm more spacious than that. So it changes. Right. It's very, it's not permanent. Yeah, thanks for the question. Yes? Um, in situations that require a lot of complex uh, conceptual thinking, how do you, uh, multitask might not be the right word, but continue your mindfulness in those situations? This is a question of wanting to jump to the last stage. I know that that's the desire. But you will find the answer by doing these practices. So let me say a little bit more. When you start to notice that your attention stabilizes, you begin to have more more of a feeling how the conceptual activity that your mind is engaged in is not fundamentally affecting that you have one foot. <laughs> to imagine two, two feet, you know, you kind of you feel like one foot is always stands on... This is not the right metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you notice that you continue to be plugged in to the field of mind. That this, that this, that this, the connection to that modality that we discussed is not severed when you become conceptually active. But this isn't something you can just think your way to. This is something that happens through the body. So it really requires practice. So I think when when I hear your question, I infer that you are losing your mindfulness in these conceptual activities, and the, the way to practice with that is actually to notice that that's happening. Yeah. It's like sometimes people ask, you know, how do I I do this practice on the cushion? How do I bring it into my daily life? That's the most this is the most frequently asked question. So, um, sure, there might be some tricks, but there's really, it's like something begins to merge. 
something gets to be carried over and you start to notice, oh, I'm getting less sucked into this conceptual activity. It's happening, but I'm not getting lost in it. I don't stop feeling my body. I don't lose connection with my surroundings. So one practice you could do is just interrupt yourself in, these, in this conceptual activity and play with this focus and feel practice. Go from the focus to the feel. You sit in front of the computer, you get sucked in. That's focused. That's attentional consciousness. And when you notice how you're like this, uh, <laughs> 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 you just lost yourself. You just, you know. Then you go to the field. And then you get uh, sucked into the focus, and then you go to the field. And then focus and field don't have to be opposites. They can start to merge. Like I can be focused on that and feel the field at the same time. Okay, you're welcome. Someone else? Zoomies. <laughs> no. <laughs> I just don't want to forget you. Thank you very much. Yeah.